0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com.
2: I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. We decided it's high time we do an episode about Mary Jane.
0: Marijuana,
1: things are happening.
2: That's right. This episode is about pot. We're exploring the rhetoric surrounding legalization in New York's recent gubernatorial primaries. And a cheesemonger turned cannabis consultant shares the tricks of the trade. Great. So do you want to conquer the world? Do you want to have hazy eyes? Do you want to... You know just relax all day and be floaty. And we find out how one exemplary South Carolina farmer is trying his hand at a new crop. Every plant that comes up from seed is different and so it's it's learning how the plant grows, how it responds, and then familiarizing myself and my senses with this plant. Plus Hannah Forden and I taste test the hottest new cocktail ingredient CBD. So subscribe to Meet in 3 wherever you listen to podcasts, and be the first to know when the newest episode of Meet in 3 drops.
3: Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview an extraordinary person in the food and hospitality industry and learn their secrets to success, what makes them happy, what makes them feel challenged and excited. And today, I have one of my favorite people in the entire culinary universe with me, Dory Greenspan. Dory is an incredible inspiration in the kitchen. I famously... Uh, don't, I'm not a great cook. And Dory's instructions in her 13 cookbooks are so clear and so inviting that I actually feel um, nurtured and helped along the way. And things actually turn out pretty well. So welcome, Dory.
4: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
3: So um, we're here Uh, In part, to celebrate and talk about everyday Dory. I would love to have some Dory in my life every single day. I mean, that would be amazing.
4: Um, You want to talk to my kid about this? (laughs) (laughs) He had me every day for a lot of days. I bet you there were times when, yeah.
3: Well, I mean, that brings us so immediately to one of the the centerpieces that I think makes um, your world so enticing is that when you have a cookbook, There's an an entire world that um, you become a part of because your cookbooks are really a conversation. And I was wondering, like, what what your thought is about, you know, conversation when you were growing up in Brooklyn? Was there was the table the place of conversation for you? Oh, Dana. No, no, no conversations at all.
4: No dinner was first of all, my mother didn't cook. There was always food, but somebody once said to me, asked me, what was my favorite meal that my mother made? And I was a grown-up, and it was then that I realized that I didn't have a favorite meal because she didn't cook. What did you eat? We ate a a three-course meal every evening at 6 o'clock. Okay. Okay. And um, there was an appetizer, there was a main course with vegetables, and there was a dessert. Um, that sounds very formal. It sounds very formal. We had to ask to be excused from the table, and we ate quickly and asked to be excused quickly. Quickly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it wasn't, that was and it's, it's interesting, because my, my mom loved food, loved to go out, just enjoyed food. She just never wanted to, and she liked to shop for it. Uh-huh. She just didn't want to cook it. And I had two brothers and no one was happy at the table. Wow. So it was it wasn't anything that I grew uh, that I grew up with, but I got married um as a college student and all I wanted was to learn how to cook so that I could have friends come visit and I I, I don't I don't. I don't know exactly where they came from, but that was really what I wanted. I wanted to have people around the table. I wanted to cook for them. I wanted them to just enjoy being together. And that hasn't changed.
3: And that just comes through in every single book that you've written, because it, you know the goal is you cook it and you share it. And uh, uh, yes. So I am curious. Uh, so you met your husband, Michael. Um, and you got married at 19. Yeah, I met him when I was 16. Okay, so I just, I need to know, what did you see in Michael at 16? Oh, I didn't see anything
4: in him at 16. I thought he was just kind of geeky and nerdy and not for me. Oh, um, no. <laughs> And, yeah, and so it was... Um, but but he was nice, which is a horrible. Yeah, thing. the worst. Terrible, word. terrible, terrible. To terrible. But you know he was he was nice, and, and we became friends, and it was really interesting because he went off. I graduated from high school. He went off to graduate school in California, and we wrote to one another, and we really got to know one another writing to one another.
3: Is he a, is he a lovely writer?
4: He is a lovely writer. He really is a lovely writer.
3: You really can understand how someone's able to express themselves that way, which is, um, you know, you find out more about their inside than their outside.
4: Yes, and, and so we lived um, two, two blocks away from one another, and we could see one another's bedroom windows and so he would call me I had a phone that rang only in, in my room <laughs> and you know living home with my parents Right. but when he saw that my light was on he would call and we would just talk and we would talk as friends and then as I said he went away to school and we wrote wrote letters to one another and when he came back I, I had I, I it was having my best friend come home and everything changed that way
3: And how did you decide to make a commitment at 19? Which seems early. And was there...
4: Oh, it's so early. Women out there don't get married at 19. (laughs) It's so early. Um, We, it it just, Michael says that we saw one another Christmas Eve and that we were talking about getting married New Year's Eve. And And we did. I mean, no one, none of my friends was married. Um, it was a time when you lived at home until you got married. If I had gotten married one year later, it might have been different. We might not have gotten married. But it Why was just that? on the cusp. It was just on the cusp of things changing. And um, we got married. We were the first people to get married, the first people to in, in our little circle in Brooklyn to live together, to have an apartment. And I... I was still a student, so I had plenty of time. All I wanted to do was learn to cook, and this
3: strikes me as sort of ex- extraordinary.
4: Well, I, I, it's you know I didn't think about it. It's just what I wanted. Looking back, you know I see it as why. But I think it was all about the people. I just wanted to have a place. I'd o oh, my. My friends had always congregated in my home when I lived with my parents. Uh-huh. And I loved having friends around. And food seemed like the way it, to
3: do it. It's a really good way to get people over. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then you can you know, talk all night. And, and you create such a great sense of, of community. Um, so you and Michael, and well, we'll stop talking about him at some point, but the two of you are so... Um, such an elegant and seemingly perfect match. I know nothing's perfect in this world.
4: My grandmother would say, poo, poo, poo. That even if you <laughs> say, <laughs> or, or touch wood or something. Because if you say, you know, something is perfect, that's yeah. when it, that's when it breaks. But we've been together a long time.
3: And um, what's the secret?
4: I don't, you know, if 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 I knew... Wouldn't that be
3: great? Yeah, that would be your next project. That
4: w- and I would share it, I would shout it from rooftops. Yeah. I don't know, there is no secret and there is and it, you know, it looks it looks good, it is good, but there are plenty of hard times. There have been plenty of hard times and, you know, I imagine there will be again. That's just what life life is, but I think boy, you better like whoever you're married to.
3: Yeah, I think um liking is such a uh it's a, It seems so obvious, but so many other things are in, in play in love. You know, there are two letters missing. You change them <laughs> out, and it's a very dramatic, yeah. Dramatic no, I think difference. you
4: really have to like one another, and um, and I think we got lucky because the odds were against us. It was, you know, we were so young. Michael had his first job, and
3: I was. Well, you're figuring it out, right?
4: Uh, figuring it out together.
3: And I, I love the idea that you studied gerontology. I mean, you have a master's in gerontology. I do. I do. And you almost have a doctorate in gerontology, which is the study I, I, of old people. And maybe I could spell
4: it now. I don't remember.
3: <laughs> <laughs> is that yeah. because you're feeling geriatric you don't remember? Or? Well, I
4: keep thinking, you know, I should have finished because, boy, I could use it now. But, um, yeah. I was,
3: I was wondering, like... When you turned away from gerontology, I was wondering if it had something to do with this notion of conversation that we've been, you know, dancing around, like like bringing people together. That that's a very one-sided conversation when you know with that's interesting. With I old had people.
4: no. I think, I think I made the decision more. Well, I certainly made it selfishly. Um, I was working on my doctorate when Joshua, our son, was born and i stayed home with him and and i also had a job and i was supposed to at a research center and i was supposed to go back to it and i just didn't want to and it was michael the wonderful michael the guy i like who said <laughs> he said you know you love baking why don't you bake and that never seemed like a possibility to me it didn't seem like a possibility because i wasn't trained i didn't feel confident about getting a job. There weren't all that many women. There were two, maybe, in the, kitchen, <laughs> in the kitchen at the time. I didn't know how to do it. You know, I knew how to be a student. I knew how to, how to do the work I was doing. Um, so it was a little scary. But he said, this is what you really love. Yeah. Why don't you do it?
3: And do, you, do you think that the intersection of the two, you know, when I, when I think about your extraordinary career the intersection of the master's or the doctorate um and what you're doing is you are an extraordinary student like when I when I think about the people that you've learned from and how you've chosen the path of study so Pierre Hermé um you know you did two books with probably at the time and perhaps still the greatest pastry chef that existed or um You know, you went to France. You didn't have typical training, but the way that you have been a student in your life has shaped your life.
4: Very much so. The other day I was working on something, and Michael walked by, and he said, I thought you were done. And I said, (laughs) yeah, well, I was kind of done, but I I, I had another idea. And he said, you know you're a grind. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, he said it lovingly and tousled my head afterward. But um, I love to study... When favorite leading line when I worked with Julia Child, yeah. <laughs> um, but when I worked with Julia, she said to me one day we were we were in the supermarket, and she said we're so lucky to be working in food, and I could think of a million reasons why she would have said that, and I looked at her and said Julia, she said because we'll never stop learning, and it's true in food there's always something to learn whether it's yeah. a technique or it's learning about a new dish or it's going deeper into a culture or it's it's endlessly fascinating and there's always something more
3: it, it's true and it, and it evolves which is nice so you're not just studying the past that's right and you're not something studying something with an end point i, I have to ask about Julie because i you know had the pleasure of working with her the slightest little bit um I bet you do a great Julia accent like Julia I accents, do No, not at, don't, at all, can't.
4: N- you can't? Can't, never have been able to, Why have never not? done
3: it. Dory, <laughs> I can't believe that you can't do a Julia we were, accent. We, Why were is one,
4: that? we were once at a conference, I was sitting next to Julia, and somebody was doing a Julia imitation, and Julia turned to me and said, I don't sound like that, do I? <laughs>
3: I said, but Julia, you
4: do. <laughs> that was good, so Dana.
3: <laughs> um, so she... she's sort of taught herself to cook and taught America to cook. But she had some blind spots. Did you find her an exceptional cook? Because there's a lot of controversy about that.
4: Oh, we made tuna salad together. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I don't... Oh, you know, I've never thought about that. I've never thought about that. She worked so beautifully, so I worked on the project Baking with Julia, so it was 27 bakers and pastry chefs um, who were with her in her home in Cambridge and then I wrote the book, um, but she was so good with them, she was so curious, she had all the right questions she knew what they were working on, she knew it from experience she knew it from studying it was she, I don't know if she was a good cook Isn't
3: that's interesting
4: we never, we never made anything other than that tuna salad. Um, though she, you know, she would come into the kitchen sometimes um, at night after um, a shoot. We would, we would either eat what was left over, or there would be somebody coming in, a new chef for the following day, and we'd cook. And she always added something by being in the kitchen, but. I've never had a, a, a fully a fully Julia meal. Yeah. Ooh! <laughs>
3: and do you feel was there something about the way that she drew chefs out that is interesting for you that you learned as a as a way to learn? Julia, I don't I don't know if if
4: if I learned something about drawing chefs out from her. But she had a quality that I think about all the time, and it's so rare to find. When Julia talked to you, she looked directly at you, directly at you. And you felt, and I think she did too, that there was no one else in the room. She cared just about what you were saying at that time. And she was so curious about everything. And I've been with her, and I've seen... So many interviews where mm-hmm. the journalist, the reporter, the TV person, whatever, is asking her questions, mm-hmm. and she's answering, and she'll look and she'll say, "So tell me, Dana, what do you think about this? How did you do this?" And it's not; it. I never felt it was a trick. Mm-hmm. I felt she was truly interested, and so she, uh, from natural instinct, mm-hmm. from from caring about other people, and she really did, um, I think she was able to bring bring out.
3: So you yeah. you learned, uh, you worked side by side with pierre May. Yes. And would you say, was that your deepest pastry education before you, um, you know, did as much baking on your own, or? So I,
4: yes. Um, but I came to pastry through the Gaston Le cookbook that was translated and had all of the classics and not all of them but it had all the classic doughs all the classic batters all the classic creams it was a very you know encyclopedic in the way it was it wasn't a big book but it covered the basics in a very orderly way and i worked my way through that book so that by the time i worked with pierre I had I had done the Julia Child project um, I had worked with Jean-Georges Von Gersten's pastry chef
3: and so Was that jo- was jo- not Johnny? No, early, his before. first
4: pastry chef, Jean-Marc Bourrier mm-hmm. who died way too young mm-hmm. um, and so I had I had I had knowledge but I hadn't really been able to use it in the way that I could when I worked with Pierre, um, it was it was nice to know. When I worked with Pierre, it was good to know that all of that study was was the right thing to do. That, no, <laughs> that, you know that that I wasn't co- that I came in knowing things.
3: So if someone was going to try to you know take the short course, cook the book to learn pastry today, what book would you choose? Could be your own, could be somebody else's, could oh, be that, guess all the list.
4: That's interesting. I think the Lenotre book is still an important book. It may not be the desserts that you would make from it. It might not be what you want to eat right now, but the techniques are there. And it's still the way... It was Karim who said that um, the sister art to pastry is architecture. And you see that as you work through Lenotre's book. You see how you make a, a cake that's the base cake. And then, you know, and it's got to hold up the rest of the, it was very, very interesting. Um, I would look at that. I thought Baking with Julia was a great baking course. Um, That book covered artisan bread baking before we just let those words, you know, (laughs) just fly off our tongues. Um, So it had savory baking. It had the basics. It's really, it's a very good baking text. And I think the first Pierre Hermé book, Pierre's Recipes, um, again, you know, we've all changed. He's changed as well. But, boy, they're good.
3: They're so good. I remember because I was at Food and & Wine, and um, mm. I love the fact that when you... Uh, your first piece that you ever did in 1983 was at Food and Wine. I wasn't there. Some <laughs> people are like, "Really? <laughs> <laughs> you were there forever." <laughs> I wasn't there in 1983. But that wise editor who assigned you your first piece, even though you had never ever written That's anything right. before, That's um, right. did it? Did you? It feel like it took nerve to send that pitch in. Well, you know, I didn't... Well, you sent the bait? Yeah,
4: because I didn't know how to write a pitch. (laughs) I didn't know what it was. And somebody had suggested that that I do it, and I didn't know how. So I had what... I remember the title of the piece was Fireside Sweets, and they were just small little pastries, and there was a truffle in there. And I didn't know what to do, so I made all of it, put it in a basket, and brought it to the reception desk at Food & Wine. I think,
3: that's, I think that's great. And they were very wise. Very wise. Someone had very good taste buds.
4: Well, they, It was really, that was the start for me. I was so grateful.
3: And you were talking about Little Sweets, which makes me think of Beurre et Selle, mm. because that is the company that you um, started with your son, yeah. Joshua. And, um, and they were Little Cookies. So, you
4: know, I, I it took me, I can't remember how many years I was married, which means how many years I've been cooking, when I finally had the courage to make a roast. I used to only cook things that I could hold in my hand.
3: <laughs> so, Wait, let, let's stop there. Why was that? I
4: don't I mean, I felt like I had control over small things, you know, a Cornish hen rather than a chicken, (laughs) you know, a hamburger rather than a meatloaf. Um, I was always a miniaturist in some way.
3: Uh, Yeah, I'm sure there's more to that because um, maybe it seems less daunting or if you, you know you can succeed exquisitely or you can fail minutely you know like it's... <laughs> what a great way of putting it but yeah so cookies
4: cook, cookies were always beret was um was a cookie business and cookies were always a favorite of mine and certainly of joshua's who now calls himself josh but uh-huh. i can't I, I can't quite do it um
3: so i'd love to hear about the, um, the birth of that business, I remember um, going to visit you, I think, and I, my memory might not serve correctly, but you did a pop-up in a hair salon.
4: Yeah. That sounds... That, that, it was that really, doesn't sound pleasant. It sounds but terrible,
3: but it doesn't. was really quite beautiful. It was beautiful um, on Park Avenue. It was
4: on Park Avenue. It was at Mizu Salon because that's where um, we knew someone. And they had front space, and they said, sure. And so what
3: year was that Tory?
4: you know i don't know it's like um, 2012
3: 2000.
4: no I, just, I think it was i think it could have been earlier than that even i just yeah. feel
3: like you you preceded the pop-up right like you basically did a cookie pop-up way before all these chefs decided the pop-up was the thing do you know it's
4: so funny joshua said we could do this as a pop-up and i said to him what's a pop-up
3: you were that early. Exactly. We were who, early. You're and, right. And who thinks of the, this magnificent cookbook author as the the lady who, you know, was so ahead of her time. She did a pop-up. I had a cool son. You, yeah,
4: yeah, I still have a still cool do. son. You still yeah. do. <laughs> He's still cool. Um, um, yeah, so we did it. We did it there. We baked. Um, we rented. We rented a kitchen in Long Island City. It was so cold. That kitchen was so cold <laughs> and so big. And... And we had friends and we had volunteers and we had people who said, let's just and we baked through the night and were so surprised when we sold everything out and then had to do it all over
0: again.
3: <laughs> <laughs> right. Well of course because you you cook nonstop and um in the second half of the, the show we'll we'll talk about like cooking in your, your your book and um but just thinking about the difference between Testing a recipe, or you know, making something, you get to give it away to the neighbors. Versus, oh. you know, I, feel like, I remember you had very beautiful packaging um, for that the cookies. Jo- that was Joshua. It was, okay. it was beautiful. It was beautiful.
4: Yeah, and it was relentless.
3: And uh, you ended up in—I um, call it the hot bread kitchen space—but you ended up opening bricks and mortar. That's right, right. That's right. Um, and then the business didn't work out, or you chose not to pursue it.
4: Yeah, it was um Joshua had he tore his Achilles tendon. How was yeah. And I was I was still writing and doing books and it was just a confluence of things that made it harder and harder to turn up and bake those cookies and get them out. But what a great experience and
3: did you enjoy the retail aspect of it because I know how much you like people you sell cookies mm, to people
4: I preferred the in that in that case I preferred the baking Uh uh-huh the baking that's a lot so and and actually that's not true I mean it was always I I'm not very good at retail because I think you're supposed to sell what you've got
3: And did you find all the flaws? You're like, well, that one's a little too blonde and that one's a little too dark. Dana,
4: you know me too well. (laughs) But also, I thought the people who came to buy our cookies were interesting. And so I would be talking to them and there would be a line. And, you know, Joshua would come and say, I'll take over now, mom. (laughs) Um,
3: Yeah. What was it like to work with um, your adored son? It was difficult. Yeah.
4: It was difficult.
3: we're both glad we did it. What was the hard part? Like, what what is it that you know made it something that you it, feel like you There were or? there
4: were a million hard parts, actually, yeah. but there were also some really great parts. And I think it was interesting for us. I mean, he was a, he was grown, but still, you know, my only little kid. Um, and I think our relationship grew tremendously then. And we came to um, understand one another better, appreciate each other's talents, know each other's flaws (laughs) very deeply. Uh Um, It was, it changed our relationship. It was hard for, it was hard for a while, then it was good. And Closing the business was
3: wrenching, and is that because you didn't entirely see eye to eye on whether it should close or no, just you would been through it together? because we wanted
4: we wanted more. We, there were things we still wanted to do, and we understood that we had to close. Yeah, and um, there were there, it felt like unfinished, unfinished business, unfinished dreams.
3: And if it is an unfinished business or dream, would you ever go back to it in a no. different? <laughs>
4: I say no, actually, I say no so quickly and that's, a, that's that's kind of become a family joke to just say no immediately when asked about this. Yeah. Um, but Joshua and I talked about it actually just a few months ago. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. No, comma, maybe.
3: That's a very, <laughs> very big distance from no exclamation point, which is where we started. Yeah.
4: I'm not sure. Yeah. There were so many good parts about it. And the cookies, I loved the cookies.
3: And how did you choose the cookies that you did to be your signature cookies? Because you did the jammers, the, the classic the jammers. I love the jammers, right. You want to describe like, what a classic jammer is and a, why that was so perfect?
4: So the cookies that we made at Bernssel were, um, we baked them in rings. So they were All, no matter what we did to them, they were all beautiful because the rings contained them and made them all the same size so that we could stack them in these beautiful tubes that had been designed. And the jammer was a sablé, a a French butter cookie with some really nice fleur de sel in it, about half an inch high. And in the center, there was jam. And all around the jam, there was crunchy streusel. Brown sugar streusel. So it was a great cookie. It was a great cookie.
3: And did that evolve from your imagination? My dream.
4: I had a dream. You did not. I, 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 I woke up in the middle of the night. We were in Paris, and I, you know, kind of elbowed Michael, and I said, I, I think I just created a cookie. And he said, that's nice. <laughs> and he's kind of like used to my getting up in the middle of the night saying crazy things. But the following morning, I baked that cookie. Wow. Yeah, so it's never happened to me. You know, again. Again, and it hadn't happened before.
3: But I will say uh, another story about where a dream rescues you <laughs> is before you went to cook with Martha Stewart. <gasps> and you woke up and ha- had a revelation that yeah, this wasn't his,
4: this wasn't as, this was more a nightmare <laughs> than, than the, the beautiful jammer dream. Yeah, um, I had a feeling that something was wrong with the recipe. And I got up and made the recipe and it didn't work. And I thought, okay, it's just because I'm
3: tired. And I made it two more times. It didn't work, it was missing an egg. It's an amazing thing that it, your brain could wake you up and say, wait a minute, maybe there's something not right
4: here. It's crazy. It's It's crazy
3: crazy because that came out of,
4: that recipe was in Baking Chimoire. It was for Speculoos. There were 200 recipes in that book. Why would, and I don't have such a great memory. I don't know what it
3: was. It was crazy. Okay, with that we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we are going to talk about this extraordinary um, new cookbook Every Day with Dory and um, you're going to get some tantalizing recipes. So stay with us.
2: Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie? Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie? Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin
0: pie just for me, girl? Please don't give none away. Let it get sweeter by the day.
1: Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's central coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com.
3: Welcome back to Speaking Broadly. You're listening to Dana Cowan, your host. And today I have with me as my guest, Dory Greenspan, who has, is publishing in a couple of days a cookbook called Everyday Dory. So as I started this podcast, I would like to be with you every day. The thing that, that struck me in the introduction, you say how writing cookbooks makes you happy. And I just get the feeling that you do what makes you happy. Feeding people makes you happy. Writing recipes makes you happy. Cooking makes you happy. Um, Were you always happy? No, and
4: I'm not always
3: happy. (laughs) (laughs) Then maybe that's why it stands out that writing cookbooks does make you happy. Well,
4: I recently said that I feel I was very lucky. And somebody, I must have written it on a blog post or something, and somebody wrote to me and said, um you're not lucky. You know, you had this, you had that. I thought, my mother used to say that um, no matter what you do, you need some luck. And I think that's true. Um, I think it's great when you've practiced and you're ready for the luck to come. But I've always, since I started writing cookbooks, I felt that I was lucky to be able to do this work, that I had found work that I really loved. I mean, that's that's what we hope for our children—that they'll find work. That the, that's what we hope for everyone who's close to us.
3: I, I like what you said that that we have to prepare for luck. I very much believe in that. I hear so much about um, you know these entrepreneurs, and if they leap, in the net appears, or if the door doesn't open, jump out the window. And I think, well, that's good, but actually, you need the parachute if you're going to jump out the window and wait for the net to appear. Like somehow, you need to spend your time in your back room knitting your parachute. Um, and so, like, for you, what is the knitting the parachute? Like, what... How did you prepare for the luck to enter your life? I think it comes back
4: to my being a grunt. Um, <laughs> I worked. I worked. Yeah. Um, I, I I was... Having made the decision not to stay in school, not to have a job as a research person, um, that was... That was a big leap, and then I worked. You know, I worked at it. Right. I studied. I, t- you know, I, I experimented. I spent a lot of time in the kitchen. Um, I wrote. I did. I did the work that I wanted to do, but it also meant that when an opportunity came, I never, I've, I've never felt ready for anything that's come along. I'm <laughs> always sure that they've chosen the wrong person. I'm always sure that oh, I'll never be able to do this.
3: That's but, part of what's so charming. I love to, because <laughs> it's true. Like I, I do know you well enough to know that there's always the other side. That's why when you woke up in the middle of the night and you said, there must be something wrong with this Beculose cookie. <laughs> I assumed there really wasn't, but it was just you, but it, I, because you I'm a I'm a warrior,
4: I'm a warrior. Um, but once and, and I'm a warrior, but I've kind of pushed myself to always say yes because I want the experience um, and then I'll work to make it work. But so when something comes along and I've you know steeled myself and said yes, that's when all the stuff that I did before,
0: you
3: know, holds holds me up. So actually, this I think this goes back to your description of pastry actually being an exercise in architecture. And I think that what you're actually saying is your career is also an exercise in architecture because you've laid so much groundwork that That's when put so nicely. Thank when, you. When something yes. new comes along, you're really you're creating the dome. But you actually, you have the pillars and you have the groundwork that makes it so that you can succeed. Yeah,
4: and I have Michael who says, you can do it. You can do it.
3: Isn't that Uh, the best? Well,
4: yes. Yes, Yes. it is.
3: And uh, when I was reading um, Dory Every Day, I want to eat this food every day. But I'm curious um, because it makes it sound like you cook at home a lot. I do, and (laughs) I do. Incredible. So, do you? um, And but on the other hand, many of these recipes are inspired by um, having a meal someplace else, and you find one little thing, and you know each of your recipes inside of them is the one little thing that makes you say, "Oh, I didn't think of that before." Like the one of. What were you going to say? No,
4: just that's my favorite part of of developing a recipe. Can I find a place? to surprise you can I like tuck in a little bit of crunch that you didn't think you were going to have or a spice that you didn't think belonged in or or that you'd never had in a dish of that kind the most fun is when you take something that people know really well and do something a little wacky with it
3: and so So, like give, uh, give me an example of that so um
4: I put walnuts in the meatballs for meatballs and spaghetti. Mm. Because as much as I like meatballs, they're kind of boring. You know, every bite's the same. There's no crunch. There's no crunch. And so putting the walnuts in, a little bit of crunch, and the unexpected. Like, I love I love in a chocolate chip cookie not to use chips. Because chips just sit there. You know, they melt, but they're the same size everywhere. So I love to chop really good chocolate, and I like to have pieces of different, si- you know, different sizes, shards, little, you know, slivers, um, and to put the dust in too. So you get a kind of tweety look. And then every time, every time you take a bite, you don't know what you're going to get. You're going to get a lot of chocolate, just a little bit. Are you only going to get the dust? So it's this idea of something being unexpected, something that gives you pleasure, that makes you want to go back for another spoonful, another cookie, another. I was making what started out to be a kind of classic French beef stew with red wine and marinating the the beef a night ahead, um, and I don't know. I got carried away. I found <laughs> I found gochujang in oh, the refrigerator. Wow. Well, you know, you buy it. You, you you really only use a little bit of it, yes. and then it just sits in your fridge, and there it was sitting in the fridge. Mm-hmm. And so I added that and some soy sauce and some star anise, which I adore mm. with beef. Mm. And then <laughs> I, I just opened the freezer, and there were these frozen cranberries. And I thought, ooh, They have tang, they're tart, they're kind of puckery,
3: and I put them in the stew, And different from a cherry. I mean, like, there's a a relation.
4: That's right. Yeah. Different from a cherry, not sweet. Not sweet. Um, It's that, that's, I mean, that's when it's really fun to be in the kitchen. And that's when it's exciting to share with readers. Right. And other cooks.
3: I, I keep thinking to myself, like, you're so sprightly as a human. And <laughs> I I think that there's something in, you just want to sprinkle fairy dust in people's lives. Oh, if only like, I could. Like, there's something, but that's what the recipes do. Because they're so, um, you know, there's they're so much charm in the writing. You know, you lo- I just feel the joy in choosing the different words, you know, Thank like, you. Um, Thank you. you know, not describing something in a dry way, but describing it in a really, like, human, lively, but that's, way. that's, uh,
4: that's the fun of writing, that and writing, writing for me is not easy, and it's not fast. I'm such a slow writer. Um, but it's, it's fun to find a new word it's fun to sometimes I love that uh, it's so
3: hard in recipes just having well because
4: the the vocabulary the vocabulary for recipes can be limited or limiting um sometimes I'll look down and I'll be at my computer and I'll see that my hands are doing something and they're they're recreating the motion of making something so I might be twisting a cheese straw or, or shaping um, a piece of dough, or slight, and and I, it's it's kind of a giggle when I see myself doing that. But I'm actually trying
3: physically, you try by doing it and looking right. at, uh, observing yourself and going. So what would that be when you twist? Yeah. Yeah,
4: so sometimes a twist is just a twist. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, right, you can't have a book, and it, and it isn't overladen with cleverness, right? Because that's also no, very, very no, unappealing. I, mean, <laughs> I, I
4: feel like this book, of all my books, is probably the most practical. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I live in three places. I, I I always say I live in three kitchens, um, and we've been spending a lot of time in Connecticut. And we're not in a city in Connecticut. We're not even in a suburb. So we're really far from, you know, if I forget something, it's an hour round trip. And so this book, a lot of all of the testing and a lot of the development was done in Connecticut. So there's a lot of, opening the fridge and looking at my favorite part of the refrigerator which is the door that has all the ready-mades and condiments and thinking okay what
3: can I use to make this dish come alive? Okay, we really need to talk about this. The, you wouldn't know, but this is the exact time in my life that I need this conversation, and I'll tell you why. So I have two kids, and which you know, and uh, my son William has gone off to boarding school, and my daughter Sylvie has gone off to college. And when they were home and we were cooking every single night, I mean, frankly, it wasn't me cooking every single night, but they were eating every <laughs> single day, um, we had a full refrigerator, and now I need to take a completely different approach, because I'm fanatical, I try to be fanatical about no food waste. And I'm fanatical about surprise, experience, deliciousness. So somehow, I need to fill the side of my refrigerator, the door, with something that unexpectedly will take, because I'll buy the proteins, go to the go to the farmer's market. Um, there's a great Hudson Valley duck that I get. I'll get, you know, um, we have, we buy like part of a cow because of course, how could I not? So, you know, we, we have some cow pieces and, you know, I have like a gigantic pork chop that's just defrosting, but they're very boring if I do them the way I would do them. So in your book. Um, the thing that I fell in love with fastest and I and I feel like I can do this although it felt like there's actually a lot of handwork in it, is the lemon goop. Partly I fell in love because the idea that you call it goop, back to our thing Ugh. about words, like I bet it does feel like goop look it like feels, goop oh,
4: it's great. I'm so oh, I'm so I'm so glad that so I often worry as a worrier, that no one will look at the back of the book and so in everyday dory i have you know the starters the nibbles the orders i have you know meat fish chicken vegetables a lot of vegetables and desserts of course and then in the back it's a chapter called basics and transformers and it doesn't have pictures the way the rest of the book does so i think people are going to ignore it but you didn't because no. in the in that that last chapter Um, is the lemon goop. So what it is, is I love preserved lemons, the Moroccan preserved lemons, salted lemons. And when I'm in Paris, you can just go downstairs to the convenience store and get them. But in nowhere Connecticut, it's not so easy. And I am not patient enough to wait weeks and or months for the lemons to preserve. And so this goop is whole lemons, some of them peeled, is some it not. It's essentially
3: supremed, though. Is that well? You don't, but but but
4: yes. It's just so it's segments of. But when you said there's handwork, you can just chop them up because in the end, that's what I wanted to hear. Yes. So what you're doing is you're cooking the lemon pulp, the the segments, um, and a bunch of the zest in a mixture of water, sugar and salt until they just about fall apart. You drain them. The syrup that's left over, this is a twofer recipe, you get syrup, which is great to splash into marinades. Um, It can be used to make a vinaigrette. Sometimes I'll just brush it over um, a chicken breast. Then you've got all the falling apart solids and you just whir them in a little food processor or uh, with a blender with a little bit of the syrup and you get the goop and the goop it's almost like it's shiny it's almost like jam and it's salty and it's sweet and it's tangy and it's just it's a it's a little miracle food (laughs) so so if you're just like searing scallops sear the scallops just take a brush and go swipe or or a knife it changes everything it transforms
3: everything. I can't wait to do that. But I think you were about to tell me that I could um, I could zest the lemon and then I could chop it. As, yeah. a, as opposed to Segmented. taking the membranes. So this and is... Not to get too detailed, people. Sorry. But I, yeah, no. I'm really... So
4: call me silly. I get great pleasure out of... Getting the segments out of a lemon or um, or a lime, right? Like cutting it, they look so pretty, and then you're left with that kind of circular fan of 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 membrane, which you can just
3: squeeze and get extra juice out of. Um, (laughs) It's, I I think. I'm sorry, this isn't video because the joy that (laughs) Dory's getting from squeezing her (laughs) circular membrane (laughs) is really pretty tremendous. Well, but I think that that's one.
4: Uh, cooking, baking, being in the kitchen. I think that it doesn't take a lot of talent. It doesn't take a lot of skill. But I think it takes understanding that there's pleasure in every step. Yeah. And so if you can find something to enjoy in every step of the process, um, I'm convinced your food tastes better.
3: I'm, I am 100% sure you're right. When I look at today's cookbooks and then I look at today's kitchens, I feel like there's an interesting, um, potential disjunction, right? In that the cookbooks, um, in, in that the kitchens are being modernized by, um, advancing technology, AI, um, smart equipment, um, And I mean, there are of course there's cookbooks for pressure cookers and InstaPots, but what do you think about the technique? The sorry, the um, technology-driven kitchen.
4: Um, I don't really have one, and I've never really worked in one. I have. I have an Instapot. I had a bread machine. Julia made me get it. <laughs> um, she said, "You've got." I said, "I don't want it." She said, "You have to learn about it." Um, I have processors and blenders, and you know, I have a ton of gear. Um, I don't have much in the way of press a button and it will cook dinner for you kind of equipment. Um, and call me old-fashioned. I love working with my hands. And I feel like, and this has been true, it's been true for a while now. There's so few things that we can make by ourselves from start to finish. Mm-hmm. We work, uh, we work so collaboratively. We work in communities, all of which is good, but we never get the satisfaction that comes from really making something. And I think that's what we can do in the kitchen. We can touch the food we can we can change it we can transform it we can make something that 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 we love and we can share it with people and you know i'm happy to have technology a tuesday night technology would be great i mean we can you know but um but i never want to lose what it means to make something by hand yeah.
3: I think that's that's beautiful. I'm going to um, close out with that thought in in terms of questions. But there's always one bonus, and um, speaking broadly, and that's paying it forward. So, is there a woman in the food world today um, who you're really excited by what they're what they're doing? It could be a, a cookbook author. It could be, um, you know, a farmer. It could be anyone who's an inspiring you as uh, you go forward in this world gee there's
4: so many uh, there's I feel like the cookbook world is just growing and growing and growing in the nicest way I love what Julia Tertian is doing Um, I love what um, Emily did with um, the Paula Wolfert
3: Emily Thalen with unforgettable Kate. about uh, right. Paula. Um,
4: I feel like, why would you pin me down to one person? <laughs>
3: well, you already I, have two, so I'm giving you one more.
4: Okay, so let me think who it would be. I'm still, I'm still inspired by, by the women whose books really changed me by a Heater, mm-hmm. whose baking books I adored.
3: Um, by, she was my first um, baking cookbook, and she was so brilliant.
4: So brilliant. Um, do you know she's 101?
3: Oh, wow. She lives in Miami? Yeah. yeah. I've
4: never met her. What? I've, I feel like I know her so well because I think I've baked everything that she's ever written about, but I've never met her
3: amazing yeah
4: so let me go back I I went forward I I went forward twice but just let me go back a little bit with great
3: okay that's that's lovely bonus question number two you live in three places Um, if you were to walk out of here and go to one um, restaurant for your perfect meal or like a delightful perfect I don't believe in um, for a delicious meal where would you go I probably
4: would walk to Paris, <laughs> 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 and I might just go right down the street from our apartment to Le Vent Contoir, which is just a wine bar, but it's my, you know, it's my
3: neighborhood. you come to Bourne as the uh, chef.
4: Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's such a, you know, I think that going out for food is a combination. Food in general—it's always—it's never just the food. It's who's around you, how you feel, how you're made to feel when you're there. And when I go to Le Vent Contour, and when we're in Paris, we're usually in and out every day, just if even if it's just to say hi. Um, I feel like it's my second my second home, but the croquettes are better. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and with that, I want to thank you, Joy, for coming on to speaking broadly. Everybody, you have to go check out. Um, Everyday Dory, the way I cook is the way I want to cook, and you will want to cook um, as well. If people want to follow you on social, where will they find you? At Dory Greenspan. Pretty simple. Mm-hmm. And you know where to find me at FW Scout. Um, I want to thank my engineer of the day, Matt, and also a new addition to the Speaking Broadly family, Nina. Thank you so much for coming today, and we'll be back next week. Um, We look forward to having you join us again for another inspiring person in the world of food.
1: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you.